Hello, friends. We are back with episode 107 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast, rolling right along in the new year of January. And we're delighted to be back on your podcast listening device to talk about some more wonderful R content from the community. And of course, I never get this started right without my great co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well today. There's some anticipation on uh, Twitter and Fostodon by some folks out there for this week's episode. So we'll, we'll try to deliver. Oh, yeah. The pressure is on. The pressure is on. You better pick up the slack, buddy. I'm counting on you. No, no. <laughs> it's all good here. It's all good. We have a wonderful issue to talk about today. It has been curated by Batul Almerzak, who has been on her curation team for some time and always does a wonderful job. And of course, she had tremendous help from our Art Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world. Our first stop in the episode goes to one of Mike's and I's favorite places, and that's Shiny, to talk about a very important component to making that journey from building that great app on your laptop to making sure you can find what could possibly go wrong as you get that thing ready for your clients or your, your team for a production release. And with that, we are talking about testing, sometimes one of the most unpleasant subjects to talk about. But with the tooling we have available now and with a prospective mindset, you can accomplish some really wonderful things. And in particular today, we are putting the spotlight on the latest blog post from Jumping Rivers and in particular data scientist Russ Hyde, who continues with a series on end-to-end testing with Shiny involving the Shiny Test 2 package. Shiny Test 2 is something we've heard about a couple of times on highlights in the past, but this is, for those that aren't aware, the next generation effort from Barrett Schlerke on the Shiny team at Posit for providing a best-in-class end-to-end capability package that lets you test your Shiny app in a headless browser based on the Chromote engine, which is basically... You all know the Chrome browsers out there. This just lets you launch it programmatically and be able to record your tests from both an interactive fashion and then be able to tweak that for some really polished scripts as you decide what you need to test in your application. So we'll go through this post a bit, and Mike, I'll be curious your thoughts on this as well. One thing that jumped out of me right off the bat from Russ's post is the use of a package that I wasn't aware of called Leprechaun. Now, I usually pride myself on being on the pulse a lot of the Shiny developments, but this one kind of flew under the radar. But Leprechaun, for those that aren't aware, like I was before I read this, is a somewhat minimalist R package for turning your Shiny app into a package authored by John Cohen, who is quite important for a lot of the work I do in Shiny. And Obviously, this this highlight's not about Leprechaun itself, but I have been reading a bit about it. And if you're looking for a slightly minimal footprint version of things that, say, the Golem package offers to you, Leprechaun might be worth a look. So I'll definitely have this in my uh, catalog of things to pursue after I do this recording. But in any event, Russ begins by creating this minimal shiny app with Leprechaun. And then adding a very basic, you know, UI element to enter text and get some feedback from the from the browser. And that provides a great entry into what you can do with Shiny Test 2. Because once you have that minimal app, all you need to do is just use Shiny Test 2. It's much like a use this 
call to get it bolted into your installation. Now, one gotcha that might occur to some people, and this is where Russ's post is really helpful, is that you might have to do a little tweaking to get Shiny Test 2 working inside a package environment. But the good news is it's all there. You just gotta have to know how your app launches and how to feed that into the appropriate spots. But again, Russ's post does a terrific job of filling in those blanks. Whereas for Shiny Test 2, you might not be aware of that at first glance, that it can definitely fold into package environments. And then Russ talks about how you record that first test. This is where Shiny Test 2, one of the biggest strides it took is this recorder functionality that gets your Shiny app with the recording sidebar right next to it. So you can determine which objects do you wanna pursue for testing for say equality or presence of as your app is being finalized for its test script. And it's a really lightweight, very solid recorder. And then it'll give you that script or that testing code right away that you could keep as is, or you could make additional modifications once you get the hang of how Shiny Test 2 works under the hood with its class system. I think it's very straightforward. And what's nice about this blog post is that it doesn't try to do too much here. Just gives you a very straight to the point example. And then it gives you a lens into what you can do in the future with this, especially in the event that you do introduce a breaking change. What are some of the intricacies for comparing snapshots between when it worked well and when your app now has an error that influenced the output? Lots of interesting discussion in this post about how you can navigate those particular snapshots and make sure that you're not saving too much at each of these testing snapshots because maybe you're changing a part of the app that shouldn't influence something else because you've already tested that. You don't want to have that extra bloat of assessing those objects as well. So there's lots of ways you can configure these tests to be a more fit for purpose fashion. And this blog post by Russ does a wonderful job of summarizing that. So again, an excellent launching point into Shiny Test 2. So it's a great complement, in my opinion, to the existing package documentation. And Barrett has been doing some nice presentations at conferences this past year that have been very helpful as well. But in my opinion, with this post and the other tooling behind available to us, you have no excuse not to test your apps. I'm going to be watching out for all of you out there. Just kidding. But yes, Mike, what did you think about Russ's post here? So this is, this is like you said, part two in a, a three-part series of blog posts from Jumping Rivers on, on Shiny Test 2. And, and like you, I appreciate that they have sort of kept these blog posts short and sweet and concise to sort of a single uh, single thought. And like you as well, I spent like an hour this morning going through the package down in the GitHub repo for Leprechaun, that package, and I might be in love. I don't know. We will see. <laughs> we will see when it comes time to uh, spin up the next the next big shiny app project if uh if leprechaun is is the choice on that one but but back to shiny test two um like you said the blog shows how you can record a test using the record test function which if if you pass it a function that runs your app it it actually prompts your app to open in a browser window with this nice friendly panel on the right hand side of the browser this panel has, has two buttons at the top that allow you to record two different kinds of tests i believe the first button is expect shiny values, 
which I believe saves the reactive data on the page that you would you would enter to a JSON file. And then the second button is expect screenshot. And this button isn't uh, covered in this particular blog post. Maybe it'll be in the next blog post. But I believe, Eric, tell me if I'm wrong, does this quite literally take a screenshot of the browser page? It sure does. It takes a screenshot of your app at that point in time, which can introduce its own set of issues, but it's great to see visually what's happening. All in a headless fashion. That's really cool. Interesting. Interesting. The, the blog post touches on, again, that, that first button, uh, expect shiny values. After you do something like you know enter text in a text input box and then click on an action button, um, the shiny test two panel on the right side of the browser will show you some code that you can copy and paste directly into a unit test file in your new test that directory uh, in your, your, your repository. Um, it really could not be easier. Like it gives it right to you. And then if you rerun the test and, and it fails, you'll, you get this really clean looking JSON output, letting you know what was expected from the initially recorded test versus, you know, what was passed during that current test that failed. Um, uh, and, I know the concept of adding unit tests to a regular old R project or or package can be daunting for a lot of people, you know, folks who haven't been developing R packages for long. Uh, And the idea of writing tests against Shiny apps can probably seem even more difficult or more daunting. Um, But I would encourage you to read this blog if you feel that way to get a sense of really just how simple it actually is to record your first unit test against your Shiny app. It's not that scary. Yeah, that's excellent summary, Mike. And this is, uh, like I said, it's a great entry point to just the potential that Shiny Test 2 brings to you. And one other thing, again, not covered in this blog post, but I think those of us that put Shiny Test, the first version of this through the paces way back in the day, if you have some old test scripts laying around for that app and you're like, oh, I'm all on board with Shiny Test 2, Barrett even includes a migrate function to bring those Shiny Test 1 scripts compliant with Shiny Test 2. If that isn't a nice pick-me-up, if you will, for the developers out there, I don't know what is. So really, the attention to detail is so important here, and I absolutely love what Barrett's done, and I look forward to beefing up a lot of my efforts, both big and small, with Shiny Test 2 this year. It's it's going to be a good one. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's just one thing that sets the, the, the posit uh, team apart from any of the other open source projects out there. It's just the attention to detail such that the these APIs are as user friendly as they possibly could be. And Shiny Test 2 is absolutely a shining example of that, in my opinion. Wow. How can I possibly do anything better than what you just did? That should be their soundbite for their next advertising campaign. Just saying. Well, to transition from, you know, that relatively straightforward and very impactful walkthrough. Now we're going to dive into a very important issue where it is very easy to talk about the virtues of reproducibility. I think Mike and I, you agree on this. It is hugely important in what we do from an analytical standpoint, from a development standpoint. It is very important to adhere to reproducibility principles. But really, when you start diving into the weeds, you get a lens into the tools that we depend on in the open source ecosystem and also potentially services that make some of this tooling possible. 
And so I'm very thrilled. And apparently we're not the only ones thrilled to talk about this, but um, our next highlight is a very important and excellent written post from Bruno Rodriguez, who makes his return to our weekly highlights with his post recently about a service called MRAN that is shutting down. We'll get to that in a little bit. But the bigger issue here, what this means in terms of reproducibility and the future for the R user, especially this different spectrum we can land ourselves on. First, let's talk about what was MRAN and why was this a newsworthy item. So MRAN was a component of Microsoft's offerings for the R package archiving in a sense, where you could give it a date and you would get basically a snapshot of CRAN at that particular date. This has been used quite a bit in a lot of efforts in the recent years to make R scripts reproducible so that you could say, if I had a script that was written in 2021, say on September 1st or something to that nature, you could feed that into an option of an MRAN call and be able to install packages from CRAN at that point in time. Now, MRAN is actually getting shut down later this year as part of a larger effort to consolidate or minimize Microsoft's quote-unquote custom R tooling that they use in things like SQL Server in the past and embracing the upstream R version that's from CRAN and obviously the R Foundation. So certainly that could be a whole nother episode to figure out the ramifications of that. But that was an interesting lens for Bruno to say, okay, well, what happens in reproducibility when maybe a service that we depend on, we can't always take for granted? What can we do as an R user to traverse this sometimes complicated journey from simple reproducibility, from, say, a package standpoint, all the way to an environment reproducibility? So we start by looking at what are some of the easy wins you can look at. And that's where Bruno summarizes arguably my favorite package and reproducibility in the R ecosystem, and that's RMV. RMV is the critical component of everything I develop, whether it's a Shiny app, machine learning pipeline, whatever have you. So I can say for that particular project, I'm using, say, TidyR version 1 dot whatever, or ggplot2 version whatever, and that is not going to change until I tell it to. That is hugely important, not just for your solo projects, but especially for projects that you collaborate with a set of team on. That can be, package issues can be easily the things that make your project go to a screeching halt. So that is really a quick win as an R user to bring reproducibility. Now, the issue is sometimes you may have a legacy project that either you you built or maybe you inherited from a collaborator where unfortunately RM or even PackRap before that was not used. What can you do in that case? Well, this is where something like MRAN would have been used in the past, but now with that going away, where are some other options here? And Bruno talks about an effort that I had not known much about called Groundhog, well, there's a great package, I do say so myself, love that, which gives you a way to, in essence, replicate some of what MRAN was, was trying to do, where you can specify some options in its own custom library call to say, at what date do you want to load a particular package like ggplot2 from in terms of its installation? And then also you can specify what R version that should really correspond to. 
interesting. I have not played with this before, but it could be a nice alternative in somewhat simpler situations. But sometimes this could break down in different ways based on environments. That's when we go next on this journey to environment reproducibility and using technology that I've been vouching for for quite some time, and that is Docker containers. Docker containers, for those that aren't aware, are a way for you to get, in essence, a blueprint of an execution environment, typically based on a Linux distribution of sorts, but you can also base it upon images that have been built by the community that are tailored to R, and in particular, the Rocker project, which has been headed by Dirk Edibutal and others to give Docker users a very easy image to base their R analyses off of. You can specify the R version itself. You could say, I want all the Tidyverse packages alongside it. I want an R Studio environment alongside it. And you can bring that into your analytical workflow. Docker does take a little getting used to, but what's nice is that Bruno has this very simple example to lead off with, where if you did have RM with your project, it is very straightforward to fold in that lock file into the Docker setup so that then once R is available in that manifest of setting up your container environment, it can look at that lock file and say, okay, RM, restore everything. Then you've got your reproducibility from the R version and the packages version. That, in essence, at least for my daily work, has solved many, many issues. Now, the bigger elephant in the room, so to speak, is that not everybody is well-versed in Docker. Sometimes organizations don't even allow you to use Docker because of some licensing changes that have occurred recently. So that's where situations can occur where if you do have Docker, you can combine it with RM and that aforementioned Groundhog package to give yourself kind of both perspectives of that package reproducibility. But also, we got to talk about something that sometimes I take for granted. We're putting a lot of reliance on Docker here. And this is where Bruno really does a great job of attacking this head on because we're in essence, a lot of the education that others such as myself and others in the community have been building upon is that we have a Docker registry of images always available, that the Rocker project is always going to be able to post these images on that Docker hub environment. What happens if that goes away? What happens if they, for every reason, need to shut the lights off, so to speak, on hosting those images? What are things we can do to have contingency plans even in the absence of other container technology. And this is where I learned about, I'm not sure how new this effort is, but a research paper that was talking about a system called GUIX, G-U-I-X, as a potential avenue to having that kind of in-between of a Docker container and what's called a virtual machine to have infrastructure spun up that fixes, say, a version of R and, say, the version of packages or the CRAN repository you can snapshot with. I have not heard about this before, so I'm really appreciative of Bruno for bringing this to our attention. But the main takeaways from this post here is that reproducibility, it's all well and good to say it's great to do. Yeah, everybody agrees on that, in my opinion. But knowing where you fall on this spectrum of where you build in reproducibility You can start really simply 
But then as you think about projects from long ago, or maybe thinking about how do you prospectively get ready for the future? There are lots of different ways you can take this. And if you don't know where to start, it can be almost bewildering in terms of what direction you pursue. So I feel like what Bruno's authored here is a great introduction to what's available to you. And he has said that this blog post was also inspired by a course that he taught recently about reproducible at a university, I believe, last year. So he's got his finger on the pulse on a lot of these issues. But I think a lot of the ideas that are brought here can get you on the right foot so that even if you can't prospectively define it all the time and you have to go retrospectively for reproducibility, you've got tooling available to make it happen. And even with the MRAN service shutting down, we still have other avenues to pursue this. So really insightful blog post here. I really am trying my best to, in, to educate others that I collaborate with on getting these fundamentals nailed down before we start hard work on a project. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not always been that smooth. But when it can be smooth, to a blog post like what Bruno has authored here are a great start to that area. So as you can see, I'm passionate about reproducibility. I'm passionate about how technology can enable this. But the key is where do you begin and knowing where you fall on that spectrum. So I think Bruno does an awesome job of highlighting those points here. So anything from Bruno you know, for, for me is sort of like required reading. And, and this is absolutely no exception. And, and I know that he's been waiting patiently for this week's. He's the one that's been waiting patiently for this week's Our Weekly Highlights episode. He's so much so that he made a, a short audio clip on, on Twitter and Mastodon about it that you'll have to check out for yourself. Maybe we can link to it in the show notes. So so thanks for the the shout out, Bruno. And thanks for contributing to Our Weekly this week with your Fantastic blog post on Emran's on retirement, and uh, I don't have a ton of familiarity with with Emran. I know that there are companies out there that had a pretty heavy reliance on the Emran distribution, um, but obviously it's going away. That's sort of what spurned the, this blog post. I think uh, it's going away July of 2023 this year. Um, so the recommended action that the Microsoft team um, ask folks to take uh, it includes replacing the, the soon-to-be-defunct CRAN Time Machine functionality with the Mini CRAN R package, which is one that I haven't explored. Um, and there was some functionality in MRAN uh, that they called Explore Packages, um, and that can be replaced with CRAN Task Views. And like you said, and like Bruno says, you know, some of this is a moot point if you're using Docker and RN on a project-by-project basis. Um, but he also talked about, like he said, that the checkpoint and the groundhog packages, which have some additional functionality to, to ensure that you're building reproducible R software, which I also wasn't familiar with. And I would encourage others to, to check out. I'm starting to go down a deep dive there. And Bruno concludes with sort of saying, you know, unfortunately, many scientists are, are not really concerned with making their code reproducible. I think that's starting to change, um, but he argues that, you know, simply there, there's no real incentive for them to do it. And obviously the, this post is a, a pretty deep dive if you're if you're getting down to Docker and even beyond Docker with the, with the GUIX um, tool. But, you know, in, in my opinion, I think there's an important idea that we should try to educate others just to get started thinking about reproducibility in the first place. Um, and it's, it's a journey, right? 
um, not necessarily just sort of, hey, do this, this, and this, and, and you're all set. That, that GUIX was a, a if I'm G-U-I-X, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it, um, but but that was a, a new tool to me as well. That, that research paper around it that Bruno references came out in 2022, so that's fairly recent as well. Um, but I was checking out some of the, the diagrams and concepts within that research paper, and it's, it's definitely an interesting um, idea, interesting tool that, that maybe might pick up some steam and we might see, see some more of it here. Um, but absolutely lots to check out, lots to read, lots to think about in a Bruno blog post. So a great way to wrap up the highlights this week. Another potential hurdle that we need to think about in terms of really long-term reproducibility is architecture of our compute environments. So for those that I think have heard a little bit about Apple's latest offerings, many of their MacBooks are now, or Mac computers are now ARM-based with M1 chips. So in essence, ARM processors handle things way differently than the Intel or x86-64 based processors that I grew up on in my computing journey. But these are things that admittedly, when you think you've got your project reproducible to the environment and to the package software versions, you've done a lot of great work already, but it's good to have a finger on the pulse of what's happening on where you're executing those containerized environments. So yes, Docker is a huge step in this, but we got to think about architecture as well. And that's where I hope that in the future, we'll always have ways of replicating existing architecture. That's easier said than done. I'm not, I'm not paid to host that infrastructure. Thank goodness. <laughs> that would be, that would keep me uh, up at night, so to speak. But I think as long as we adhere to some of these best practices, and knowing where you fall in this spectrum, you're going to give yourself a very solid chance at maintaining this. And frankly, the biggest hurdle of all is awareness. As, as you said, some collaborators in the scientific community just say, hey, I made my script. I put it in my manuscript as a supplement. I'm done. They can get the code. No, not quite. But I think with the advent of how easy it is to get started in this tooling, we're on the way, but awareness is key, right? Absolutely. There's a, a lot to think about. And, and, you know, from a hardware perspective, if we were just all on Linux hardware, Eric, right, we wouldn't have to even talk about some of these Mac ARM issues, right? Oh, yes. And um, I, I will just say my uh, youngest son's favorite uh, mascot is a penguin for good reason. Yes. Hashtag just I saying. love it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, um, we, we could talk so much more about the rest of the issue, but we're going to talk about some of the recent uh, finds that we had as we wrap up this episode. And for me, um, one that almost made the highlights, it was right down to the wire on the voting, was an awesome tutorial by Thomas Sandman on using both SQL-based databases and NoSQL databases in R. Now, this is great if you're hearing those terms and you're thinking, Eric, what in the heck are you talking about? This is really a great deep dive into dealing with what I'll call structured data, where it fits in that nice tabular-like structure, rows and columns, like we often see in tidy data examples, but also unstructured, nested hierarchies. And that's where NoSQL solutions come into play. So if you're diving into that world or you kind of want to know what's up in that space, I definitely recommend checking out Thomas's blog post. Really great summary there. That reminds me. <laughs> that reminds me of I think a Vicky Boykis uh, 
newsletter post uh, she writes the norm core newsletter post it's i think it's titled no i don't want to learn your garbage uh query language <laughs> <laughs> sorry that's like sort of sort of a downer but it's it's a very very funny blog post yes. because sometimes as you will find out as you dive into the world of sql and no sql that every sort of offering out there has a different flavor of a query language to actually get your data back out of those databases, but uh, that that'll be, I guess, sort of a an, an addendum to uh, maybe maybe I can find the link to that an addendum to, to other things that I found uh, this week. But some some notes that that I wanted to throw out there this week is that Posit Conference, formerly our Studio Conf, is going to be in Chicago this September seventeenth to the twentieth, I believe. I don't know if this has been news for a couple weeks now, but I don't think we've talked about it yet. In the highlights, so I wanted to throw that out there for folks. And then one thing I did find in the highlights was a new package authored by John Harmon called Scenes for switching between alternative UIs in a shiny app. Uh, no surprise that this is what I'm calling out, right? But but think about, I guess, the idea where a user's login would direct them to either like an admin view of the shiny app or, or a non-admin user view of the app. Uh, it looks like there might be some other really cool applications of this package that include the ability to switch the functionality of the app based upon a get query parameter at the end of the URL. He gives an example of, of providing a view only mode versus an edit mode um, of your app. And, and this package is somewhat conceptually similar to Colin Fay's brochure package, uh, which is not on CRAN though, and is a little bit more complex than scenes, I believe. And it's also conceptually similar to the Shiny Router package and the Blaze packages, which are on CRAN. Um, but the latter two focus on, I guess, routing the app based upon the URL. And for for the Scenes package, um, John does have a really cool example app, albeit it, it's very small, that showcases Scenes functionality. And, and we did link to that in the show notes. And it really does sort of give this multi-page experience that's that's really cool and potentially pretty transformative. I think we're getting closer and closer to sort of that, that multi-page um, stable package uh, for shiny applications that, that we can leverage. So it'll be interesting to see how, how this grows. And for any other shiny heads out there, uh, you might find this interesting as well. Yeah, I was very intrigued to see this come through because uh, about a year, year and a half ago, I had a little venture into making a multi-page shiny app um, package wrapper to let a user quickly see kind of the evolution of an app from start to finish and kind of showing how someone might get the bare bones UI all the way to a really polished interface. And I was basing that on brochure in the past and not that I have anything against brochure because you all know I'm a big fan of Colin Faye's packages, but I'll certainly give scenes a, a look to see if I can streamline some of the, the requirements I have in that uh, fun little package that went on hiatus for a bit, but maybe I'll resurrect it this year. So yeah, John's been doing awesome work and really great to see his contributions in the community like always. And now it's time to get, hear from all of you, our listener feedback. And in particular, we got ourselves a boostagram that we've been talking about for quite some time. And I'm really excited for this one because it is coming from the creator and editor-chief of Jupiter Broadcasting from the esteemed Chris Fisher. He gave us 10,000 sats. Oh yeah. To say, nice work guys. I love that tight intro. 
Hey, we aim the pleas of our intros, Chris. Thank you so much for that feedback. Thank you very much, Chris. Absolutely. That is awesome. Great to hear from Chris. And I may have mentioned it a couple episodes ago, but Chris is a huge reason why I built in this functionality of if you grab yourself one of those fancy new podcast apps at newpodcastapps.com, you can do exactly as Chris did, a very short message and give us a little fun contribution along the way, illustrating a concept called value for value, which you can read about in the supplements of this episode as well. So again, thank you so much, Chris, for a kind contribution. And certainly if you want to get a hold of us, you've got a couple of ways. You could do that boostagram approach that I mentioned. You can also contact us on the Our Weekly Highlights contact page, which we have linked in this episode's show notes as well. Very easy to get in touch with us. And always giving us a shout on the social media is a great way to do it too. As far as where to get a hold of us, you can get in touch with me. I am on Twitter sparingly with at the Rcast, and I'm also on Mastodon with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can our listeners get a hold of you too? Yes, I'm still uh, still doing both at, on Twitter at Mike underscore uh, Catchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And then on Fostodon, Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome sauce. That is great. We love hearing from all of you in the community. And certainly if you want to get involved with our weekly itself, we would welcome to have contributors and curators join our team. You can find all that information at rweekly.org. We have a handy little GitHub repo link right at the top, as well as a handy link in each issue about how you can contribute to our weekly. Pull requests, feedback is always more than welcome, and we always appreciate having all of you um, contributing to this fine effort. Well, that's going to wrap up episode 107. As always, my thanks to you, Mike, for joining me and making this so much fun for me to do. And we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week. <laughs>